If you have a Bible with you or the Version Bible app, go ahead and get it ready. We're going to be in Acts 2 all day. If you're not familiar with Acts 2, it is one of the founding texts of the New Testament. It's one that the church has gone back to over and over and over again um, for inspiration, uh, to give it a point, a reference point, a center. Uh, last week we talked about this little guy right here. Uh, 350 million of these things have been sold. Old Doc Rubick. Uh, decided that he wanted to create something that would actually allow his students to uh, know what 3D objects were like. But really, it was about how to build something where things would move around like this, and, but the whole organism would not come apart. So we, I said, suggested to us last week, have been like this and, and twisting this thing that God designed to be in perfect order. And we, every twist, every time that we think we're going to fix it, we actually end up making it worse. And so no matter what happens, and so we think we can fix it, and when we can't, then all of a sudden we decide uh, we're going to peel the stickers off, or we're going to do some other thing to kind of cheat to make this thing get fixed, not realizing that only the power of God can really change the world. If you don't know how this thing was built, it's going to be really hard to solve it. This has been uh, quite the week since we've seen each other last. Let's see, it was Super Bowl Sunday. The first event was the traumatic retirement of the Oracle from uh, Super Bowl predictions, uh, followed by the Super Bowl itself with the very, very conservative, almost Amish halftime show um, that, that was there. Uh, the, uh, and the game finished, and then uh, Monday we were provided a lot of clarity about the future of our political process by the Iowa caucuses. And then uh, well, it was followed by the State of the Union uh, address, uh, which I'm dying to say it, but I won't. I was going to say it really tore me up, but I <laughs> decided not to say that joke. Um, the next day, you've got the acquittal of the president by the Senate, and then you've got uh, the Democratic debates, and then you've got the coronavirus, which Em and I actually have friends that are under quarantine at Miramar right now. Uh, because of the coronavirus. And so there's just all this stuff going on. And yet we're really convinced that if we just take this and we give it a few good twists, if we just did this, if we just did that and that there. No, that's not it. And so you just keep solving it. Even worse is that the more you play with it, the more you can almost start tricking yourself into thinking that this is the way it's supposed to be. <laughs> oh, yeah, it matches. It's perfect. Because in my mind, that's what it ought to look like. All that really matters is that I'm the one holding it and controlling it. It doesn't really matter how it looks. Through it all, all the events of last week and since the day we're going to talk about today, the church going to church. It just keeps doing its thing. It keeps feeding the hungry. It keeps blessing people. It keeps pointing people to Jesus. keeps doing its thing. The church is really the only movement ever in human history that has never faded it's gained strength. The only, it's not a social movement. It's not a, a, a boys club or a girls club. It's none of that. It's centered in a very particular place around a particular person. It has a particular mission, and we are called to that mission. So the church was told, if you remember last week in Acts 1, God gives them this charge, and he says, the first thing I want you to do is wait. Ready, set, wait. And he says, I want you to wait for the Holy Spirit to come. That was the text I read at communion time this morning. He says, uh, I want you to wait, which is different than procrastinate. Waiting and procrastination are two different things. 
Later this afternoon, you may be hungry. You may go to a restaurant. You may order food. And if you do, you're not procrastinating eating your meal. You're waiting for it to arrive, right? Some of you don't want to wait, so therefore you will go through a drive-thru and you will get fast food because you don't want to wait, right? But we understand waiting. Procrastination is what will come after that. When you go home and you're tired after eating and you want to take a nap because it's Sunday afternoon and the great American Sunday afternoon pastime is napping. Uh, So you're going to want to take a nap and a loved one will come to you and say, dear, would you please take the laundry out of the dryer and fold it? Okay. You will then say, after my nap, okay, that is procrastination. That is putting off something that you would rather not do uh, for the sake of something that you do want to do. Okay? What they do is not procrastinate the mission of God. They don't put it off. They accept it. They're just walking in obedience and they're saying, okay, we will wait. The day we're going to talk about today is when God shows up, when God delivers on His promise and grants them the gift of the Holy Spirit and His power. The disciples are all in one place. The setting is Jerusalem. They're there for what's called the Feast of Weeks, like uh, two weeks, three weeks, that kind of weeks. The Feast of Weeks, which was basically a big bash, a big party for the beginning of the wheat harvest. Okay, so uh, it was right before everybody went out and harvested all the wheat, and so they all got together and they read Scripture and they celebrated God's provision for them again. It was called the Feast of Weeks. So there, all the, uh, I hate to say it, but at the time it was mostly men were there gathered together to celebrate the Feast of Weeks, the beginning of the wheat harvest. And then there are all sorts of things that happen. There's a sound. The text says, like a mighty rushing wind. And then they see something that looks like tongues of fire. So they hear the sound. They look over at the apostles, and then they see what appear to be tongues of fire falling from heaven. And then the next weird thing that happens, after the sound and after the tongues of fire appear to fall on them, then the apostles start speaking. It's the strangest thing. They aren't speaking in their own language. And they're not speaking in the native hearer's language. They're speaking some sort of other language, but the people are hearing it in their own language. So it would be like somebody who's a native of China who doesn't know English, walking in the back room, speaking Russian, and me hearing it in English. That's weird. That's strange. That would get your attention. That it does. And so they go, well, what does this mean? And they sit there and they hear the noise. They see the firefall. They... They hear the, the odd speaking, and they go, how is this possible? And, of course, they do uh, what they think, what many of us would think if we saw something like that, which is, these guys must be drunk. That's what they say. They go, uh, they're full of new wine. And Peter responds, no, it's only 9 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> now, we do this even now, right? You see a bad driver at night, you think he must be drunk. Uh, you see a bad driver in your morning commute, and you just, you, 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 you hurl your expletives or whatever, and, and you assume they're just a bad driver. You wouldn't assume that at 9 o'clock in the morning, 8 o'clock in the morning, whenever your commute is, that they're a bad driver. Well, here they're going, these guys must be drunk. Others are going, okay, what does this mean? What does this mean? That's the question. So Peter starts talking, and he points them back to the prophet Joel. Joel said, 
In the last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my Spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. And before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So he says, Joel said it, now you're watching it happen. Then he goes on and he adds, it started with Jesus, but you killed him. So God erased him because death couldn't hold him. And then he goes on and he quotes from Psalms. And now after pointing to Joel and then pointing to Jesus, he goes to David now, and then he's going to point back to Jesus. Then he's going back to David and he's going to point back to Jesus. He's drawing this line to help them understand this is not a Johnny-come-lately thing. This is what God always planned would happen. So after Joel and then saying, you killed Jesus, but God raised him from the dead because death couldn't hold him, he quotes Psalms and says, essentially, but David is dead. You know who's not? His descendant, Jesus. This is Acts 2, 29-33. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and the tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet, and he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, and he has poured out what you now see and hear. He says the one who's responsible for this is Jesus. Jesus is the one that David talked about. He said the Messiah was going to be raised, and guess what had happened? And so now he's up there, and he just poured out everything that you see in front of you. And then he starts talking like God's just getting started. God is only getting started. God's only getting started at things. Now, God chooses this day. You ever ask yourself, those of you who've thought about this text before, why did he pick that day? Why did he wait? He tells them to wait. Why not just give them the Holy Spirit and get on with it? There's something very symbolic about this particular day. You may remember back in the, in the ministry of Jesus, he talked about uh, when they were at Samaria, for instance. Samaritan woman at the well, that story. At the end, they just want to get out of there. He says the oddest thing. He talks about the harvest. And he says, open your eyes. Look at the harvest. They don't see the harvest. They see a bunch of Samaritans. But he keeps pointing them to that. In other places, he'll say the harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. And guess where? Guess what happens now? They're at this harvest festival, harvesting all the wheat. And then the Spirit falls right there. Just as they celebrate the beginning of the physical harvest, so God initiates the beginning of the spiritual harvest on the same day. It becomes a celebration of God harvesting that which He's been sowing over the earth since the beginning of time. And we often think of ourselves, I think, of maybe living in the last days. And I suppose there's an element of that is true. But I think sometimes it'd do us well to think and reflect on the fact that we are actually kind of the, in those days where God is starting to twist this thing differently and get it back to the way that it should be. And so Peter's saying to them, in essence, this is what you've been waiting for. This moment, right now, where the Holy Spirit of God is being poured out across the earth. 
where people, now it's not just bound to just to the Messiah Himself. The Messiah is raised he's at the right hand of God, and now He's the one pouring out His Spirit on all creation. Another Old Testament reference, it's not explicit, but it's implicit. You guys may remember the story of the Tower of Babel. In the Tower of Babel story, you remember, man tries to do this. Now, you know what? I'm going to play around with the Rubik's Cube a while. I'm going to build a tower to heaven so that we can be like God. We're going to build it as high and tall as we can. God's not a big fan of it. And so what he does is, guess what? He does this with languages. He says, now we're going to mix up all your languages so nobody can talk anymore. Well, here we are at Pentecost, and guess what? Everybody hears in their own language. It's the reversal of the Tower of Babel. It's a symbol that God is starting something brand new. He's beginning the restoration of all things. The prophet Joel talked about it. David talked about it. Jesus talked about it. Now we're talking about it. And that miracle is a sign of what the Scriptures had promised for centuries before. That, sisters and brothers, is what we are part of. We're the plan A of God. There is no plan B. And so what we are a part of is far more important than some sort of social club, a community activist organization, a political party. We're not just nice people or people who are kind enough to tip our cap to God on some occasion. We are the final movement of God in the restoration of all things. We carry with us the ministry of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit both within us and at our backs. Now that is more important than just about anything going. And that's the point that the text is trying to make. That's what Peter is trying to help them understand. And that becomes the central message of the church. So no matter where they are, they eat, drink, sleep, Christ. If, they, if the Holy Spirit tells Philip, later on we'll do this story, he says, sees a chariot and he says, Philip, go run up alongside that chariot. Then Philip puts on his Nikes and he goes. <laughs> he runs. He's not told why. He says, just go. And he goes. You see, there's an intensity, there's a focus that Peter instills, Christ instilled it first, but it's carried on in the words of Peter today and what he's about to say. This Christianity 101 sermon that he gives at Pentecost that people respond to by the thousands is as basic as what you heard this morning at communion time. But the difference is, are we, we're kind of preoccupied and we've got other things to do. And I guess I wonder, as we read this next text, this is Peter's mini-sermon at Pentecost, that, that we take this the way that the people who heard it first heard it. And when we give it to others, we give it with the same passion and vigor as Peter gave it. Acts 2, 36-41. Therefore... Let all Israel be assured of this. Not just a few guys. Okay, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Very simple sermon. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Now, in my mind, I thought he stopped there, but it says, With many other words he warned them, and he pleaded with them, saying, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted the message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number 
that day. 3,000. So he says, you crucified him. And God has made him, rose him from the dead, and has made him Lord in Christ. Well, what should we do then? Repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized, he says. Repent, that word. Change your mind, change your will, change your direction. It's a change. A few uh, applications, and then the sermon is yours. The truth sets us free. It always has, it always will. He goes to them and he says, God made Jesus Messiah and you crucified him. That has to hurt. It has to sting. It does. It says it, cut, it cuts to the heart. They ask what they must do and Peter says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's the one who made today a reality. That's what you're seeing. You're seeing Jesus the risen Lord pouring out his Holy Spirit on earth. And then he keeps saying, save yourself from this crooked generation. Polite dishonesty is never better than the truth in love. The word repent means to change the mind, change the heart or the will. We always assume that nobody wants to change. I always think that's an odd assumption for us to make. I miss that sound. <laughs> I do, I do. Uh-oh. I think the most humiliating experience that one can have when they're learning to do anything, you know, you might learn to read, might learn to, uh, you know, I don't know, play a sport or something like that. I think the most humiliating thing to learn in any kind of public setting, certainly, is skiing. Uh, learning to ski is an absolutely humiliating experience. When I learned to ski, uh, I made the mistake of going with, a, with somebody who was my girlfriend at the time, a far inferior woman to the one I'm married to now, of course. Um, <laughs> And, and, and her family invited me to go to Squaw Valley, Lake Tahoe, and, and ski with them. Now, w- when you're a young college guy, you're full of bravado, and you just want to impress your girlfriend. That's really all you care about. That never really wears off. And man, I, by the way, I think there's a part of men that always want to impress their significant other. Uh, but I remember my girlfriend going, hey, have you ever skied before? And I, I just kind of flippantly said, yeah, sure. <laughs> I had never been in my life. Um, I thought, okay, you know, how hard can it be? I mean, I'm, I'm a good skater. I'm a good surfer. Uh, this should be easy. There was no real sn- snowboarding was not a thing back then. Um, and so we go to, to Squaw Valley. Little do I know, her family, they're all like magnificent skiers. Like her brother does helicopter jumps. Like where a helicopter flies over one of these straight down ski runs and you jump out of the helicopter and land right on the run and go down. Okay, this is the family that I go with. So we get, to the, we get to the ski run, uh, and of course, putting on your skis is not easy, frankly, if you have never done it before and nobody's really teaching you. No, she assumes that I'm a man of my word, and so I have been before, and this will be nothing. Well, I eventually kind of hobble my way to the, to the lift. Well, those of you who have never skied before, the lift comes rather quickly and is rather heavy. And if you don't know that your friends are supposed to keep the toes of your skis up, then bad things can happen to good people. And that's exactly what happened. The lift comes around. My girlfriend picks my girlfriend up, hits me kind of right in the backside, and I go face down into the snow. The, the lift goes over me. She jumps off because she can see what happened. Oh, are you okay? Are you okay? Oh, yeah, you know, I must have, I got something in my eye or something. You, know? <laughs> you get back on the thing. I eventually figure out, okay, I'm going to put my toes up. The thing comes, scoops you up, and takes off with a problem. Now is, how do you get off? 
right? I've never been off of a ski lift. So we ride all the way up, you know, halfway up. It's pretty up there. Everybody's having a good time. It's quiet, you know. You put your arm around your girlfriend or whatever. It's like, I like skiing. This is awesome, you know. <laughs> you get to the exit, and, and if you're not used to it, that can also be a rather humbling experience, which it exactly was. So we get to the end. She jumps off like a little ski bunny, and, and I'm like, I don't know what to do. So I just stay on. And it kind of goes, it just keeps taking me. Eventually, I see this is not, uh, this thing's taken off, and she's already whipped around and is looking at me. I'm probably 12 or 15 feet off the ground, and I jump. I just jump. <laughs> I jump off. I land in a patch of snow that's not packed well. So I land, and it's one of those deals. You're, you, I don't even know where my skis are. I was probably this deep in snow. I land in there. I manage to, to claw my way to safety. I get back on the thing, and I thought that that had maxed out my humiliation, but it had not, because <laughs> you haven't skied yet, right? So when you get skiing, uh, those of you who are familiar with skiing know, uh, if you want to go fast, the way you do that is you put your skis straight ahead. And uh, she took me on my, this run because she thought I had skied before. This was a blue run, which for a person is, it's not a black diamond, it's not awful, but it's challenging. Even for a, a person who skis once a year, you know, it's a good uh, test of your skiing ability. Uh, there are actual downhill runs. I mean, there are moguls. There are things, moguls are, for the, for the uh, skiing illiterate, those are little uh, hills, okay? Um, <laughs> so I get there, and I get up there, and I go, and I get going, but I, I still hadn't figured out, okay, how does one stop, right? So you just go, and, and I go, I go, and I'm going, I'm going really, really fast, and you hit that point, you guys ever done that in a car or a, on a bicycle or a skateboard where you realize, I'm going too fast, I'm sitting there, but I have no idea what to do. And I see people, you know, weaving in front of you, and you're like, oh, these people are in harm's way. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit somebody if I don't do something. So I did what, you know, you think you do. You just fall on purpose. You just go down. I mean, I can't roll all the way down the hill, can I? <laughs> no, but I, you can roll halfway down the hill, I found out. So I go kind of head over heels. Skis are up the hill, which is always not what you want because it's hard to get back up the hill. And the worst part is, you get these little, like, eight-year-olds, right? And they're just kind of going, are you okay, sir? You know, you know. <laughs> so I sit there, and I go through an entire day of utter, complete humiliation. And at no point that I can recall during that day did I listen to my girlfriend at the time trying to tell me how to stop. All I did was keep trying and keep doing what I wanted to do. I did discover that if you want to have fun and you're having that kind of day on the slopes, the best way to do it is just wait for one of those eight-year-olds to come by and you can stick your pole out. and <laughs> <laughs> That'll keep you entertained throughout the day. <laughs> but let me say, let me say you this. Uh, when you know that somebody is heading in a difficult direction, or if you know that you are, uh, and you're putting yourself and others in danger, the loving thing to do is not to let somebody continue in that direction. It is to tell them, it is to scream at them, stop, 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 stop. You remember that time that you were on vacation and you were in a foreign country maybe or in a different city 
and you had no idea where you were going, you were heading the wrong way, you asked somebody for advice, and they said, oh yeah, you're going the right way, and you weren't, and they knew it, and you were, weren't you glad that they didn't tell you to turn around? Yeah, I didn't think so. Spiritually speaking, we do it all the time with people. We see people ruining their lives. We see people rebelling against God. We see people that have no idea how to make it down that kind of a hill. And we're supposed to be the ones that are standing up there going, hey, don't do that. (laughs) Don't do that. And I've sat in gatherings with Christians, other Christians, okay? We're sitting there as a cluster, and there are people who, who really need to hear somebody say, the spiritual version of it's time to stop. You need to grow up. You need to turn around. You can turn around. You can do it. Because of the grace and the power of the Holy Spirit of God that Peter tells them, what do we do? He doesn't say keep, keep going. Well, you know what? Who am I to judge? I don't want to make you feel bad. You know, was I too strong? Was I too strong? Peter said, no, no, forget it, forget it, actually. Instead of repent and be baptized, we're going to use seriously consider. He gets up and throws thunderbolt after thunderbolt in Acts 2. And you will not find, you will find very rare occasions where somebody really soft pedals the gospel. Because they understand that what part of loving a person is having the courage and the guts to be willing to tolerate the pain of telling them, you got to slow down. you got to turn around. This is not good. And if somebody asks you, what must I do? Here's your answer. Repent. Repent and be baptized. Give your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And this promise, he says, is not just for you. It's for your children and your children's children and those who are far off. Whoever the Lord our God will call. Number two, the gospel is more powerful than we are. All Peter does here is tell them the truth. He releases God's powerful word and they hear. I mean, look, sisters and brothers, if if we don't do anything else, anything else, We must preach the gospel. That is why we're here. What is that? That God raised Jesus from the dead, that He made Him Lord in Christ, and that He offers salvation and abundant life to all who call on His name. That's the gospel. That's what it means to feed His sheep. It's to help them understand what that gospel is, get them to respond to it, and then shepherd them along the way. We're told to feed God's sheep, not pet them. We don't, we're not here to pet people. We're here to feed people in the name of the chief shepherd. The one who had the guts, the love in his heart to come and to die for us and tell us that we needed to change. To invite us to a better way of life. To let us know, hey, you know what? I know this isn't perfect. But if you give your life to me, not only will your own life start to make a little bit more sense, but I will use you to help begin the restoration of all things. We should want to be, don't get me wrong, I mean, we should want to be relevant and all that kind of stuff, but we should never want to be more relevant to people than we are relevant to God. Numbers are 
very deceptive, right? And I've heard this particular thing pointed out. Well, preach the gospel and you'll have thousands every day. It's like, well, okay, you remember a chapter or two before this. If you back up into the gospel of Luke, you remember the crucifixion. Remember how many were there? Crickets. I mean, it's like John and Jesus' mom. That's who's there. You flip forward a few chapters from this. Stephen gives basically a more rowdy version of the same sermon and is stoned to death. So we have to remember as we look at things like this that if we're trying to get a sense for what we're supposed to do and how we will recognize that we're actually obeying God, we have to have a clear sense of the gospel so that we know if we're being obedient to God and then understand that our role is obedience and God's is results. That our job is obedience. I mean, there are times, I, sure, I, I'm like, boy, you know, I can't wait to have real sound and real lights and a real stage and a, and a music stand that doesn't wobble, so it, I feel like I've, uh, I don't know, got some, my head's doing this every time I'm <laughs> looking down at my notes. <laughs> and you know what? All that stuff, that's fine. That's fine. I want those things, and that'll be great. But more than you need real lights, real sound, real stage, you need real spirit. you got to have real spirit. Okay? Because other, other than that, you fail in the eyes of God. You failed in the eyes of God. Third, the gospel is for everyone everywhere. Promises for you and your children, your children's children, and those who are far off and all whom the Lord our God will call. The Oscars are tonight. Uh, there's a movie in, nominated for Best Picture called Ford vs. Ferrari. How many of you have seen it? What's the matter with you people? Go see that movie. Dude. Come on, man, you can take your kids to that one. It's clean, generally, you know, uh, but it's basically the story of Ford trying to challenge Ferrari at the Le Mans race in France, 24-hour-long race, and about Ford trying to build a car that is big enough, strong enough, fast enough to challenge Ferrari, who was the class and had really never lost the race before. So you have this moment where they bring out the first prototype of Ford's car, and so Christian Bale's characters, Christian Bale, Matt Damon are in this movie. Christian Bale gets in it, and he drives it, and he comes back around. He's like, I don't like it. And he comes back, and he keeps driving it around, driving it around. And he says a couple of important things. First of all, it needs a bigger engine, so they put a bigger engine in it. And then he says, you've got to lose weight from the car. And so they just start pulling parts out of the car and throwing them outside the car until it gets lighter. So now you have bigger engine, less weight. Bigger engine, less weight. I'm going to submit to you that most churches in the country, and most Christian lives, frankly, need a bigger engine and less weight. There are too many things that hold us back. It could be sin. It could be some sort of activity we're involved in that puts drag to where every time we try to run, spiritually, it's like running with a parachute on. And it makes things too heavy. The engine, if you will, is the gospel. Got plenty of horsepower. Not the problem. But, as Hebrews would put it, sometimes you've got to throw off the sin that so easily entangles. Sometimes it's stuff you've got to lose. Sometimes it's relationships that you've got are toxic that are holding you back. You've got a friend that's a terrible influence on you. So you, you say you want to be a better husband or a better wife or a more righteous uh, single person, but but you're not willing to give up what it takes to do that. You just say, all you do is go around saying, I want to be Ferrari. 
Bigger engine, less weight. Bigger engine, less weight is, is kind of what Peter gives them. Look, the answer is in the power of the Holy Spirit of God. It's really not, you know, you don't need Einstein up here running formulas to show you, oh, if we do this and we do that and we do that and do that and do that, then, then guess what? Uh, we're going to be faithful to God. He's like, no, no, no. Here's what you do. You repent. Change direction. Be baptized. Okay, that's in there for a reason. This was inconvenient. You got thousands of people. They're there for a festival. Okay, but that's the moment at which a person says in bodily action, I have fully surrendered myself to God and I'm dying to myself and I'm being raised to new life. Repent and be baptized and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's it? At least Peter would say, big engine, less weight. You're going to go faster. What about all the laws of the Pharisees? Nope. Nope. But my local religious teacher, haven't you heard what the Sadducees say? Yeah. Repent, be baptized, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and then live it out. And the journey from that point forward is witnessing to Jerusalem, Judea, and the ends of the earth. This shirt I'm wearing right here, right? Think of the world we're living in where you can buy a shirt like this. And in one purchase, you can help the church, you can help rescue women from sex trafficking by just buying a shirt. You don't have to say anything. Right? We live in an amazing world. These guys had no phones, no cars. Shopping was, I'll trade you, you know, my camel for your donkey. I mean, that's, there was no, the privilege, there were no airplanes to get on to go see anywhere. There's no, they went around preaching the gospel. And so you buy this and then I sit here and I go, these are the tags, you know, each one of these things is a tag, the signature of the woman who made the shirt, rescued from sex trafficking. I got two. Sao Lang T. Fung. That's their name. Right? And I think to myself, I'm like, <laughs> the gospel's working in Cambodia. That's a long way from here. And it works over there. And there are women being rescued from sex trafficking because there was somebody willing to take this Seriously. When you walk out of here today, you're going to go, you're going to see people. I mean, seriously, go walk down Grand. I don't care if it's raining, get in a car and drive. Uh, go walk out here and, and look across the way. Go look across the street. Okay, all over, there are people there who need somebody to tell them, hold up. Have you thought about where your life's going lately? Have you? What should I do? It's time to meet the Lord Jesus, is the answer. It's time to meet the Lord. Repent. Be baptized. For the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is not just for you for your children, your children's children, and those who are far off, and those whom the Lord our God will call. In the 2007 edition of Newsweek magazine, 
author and radio personality Garrison Keillor, he was asked to choose what he considered to be the five most important books ever written. The top of his list was the book of Acts. When describing the book of Acts, he said this. He said he offered this concise but potent summation. He says, the flames lit on their little heads and bravely and dangerously went they onward. I like that. No matter what you feel like you'd like to see different or changed in your life, the answer remains the same. Bigger engine, less weight. Want to be a better husband? That's going to take more power than you have. Want to be a better wife? It's going to take more power than you possess. You want to be a better church? You want to be a better neighbor? You want to be a better coworker? You want to be a better anything? The answer remains the same. In 2,000 years, it hasn't changed. So the invitation today goes like this. For some of you, it's literally repent and be baptized. You've never given your life to Jesus Christ. Okay, maybe today's the day. You don't need to procrastinate. <laughs> if you want to discern or you want to wait, that's one thing. Don't procrastinate. Repent and be baptized. For some of you, it's, uh, I have not spoken of Jesus to the people around me the way that I could. For others of you, it's going to be simply, I need to spend more time praying that God would allow his Holy Spirit to come and work inside my life, that God would search my heart and reveal to me what I need to do. And for others, it's, I've gotten apathetic, and what I need is essentially, I need the Holy Spirit to pour gasoline on me and set me ablaze again with the passion I once had when I first came to the faith. To where I'm, I'm, I'm in, I'm all in, and I understand this is the most important thing I'm ever going to do. Now, when I stand on this stage and I look out, you know, I don't know if it's half the room, but it's pretty close. I help lead to Christ, and, and there, I'm so, I'm like, that, if, if I don't do another thing in the rest of my life, that will have made it worth it. And guess what? It's not just about, it's not for the pastors, it's for everybody. That's what Joel says, and what Peter says. That promise is for everybody. He wants everybody. 